Hi, Pastor John here, welcoming you to our broadcast. Today we're going to tell the story of a woman named Deborah. One of Israel's judges in the tumultuous time detailed in the book of Judges. Deborah leads a commander named Barak into victory. It's an awesome tale, but buried deep within it is an even greater one, a tale of God's grace. Join us as we attempt to answer the question, how gracious is God? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I can rest easy then. Before we get to our passage for uh, the day, let me just share with you a couple of things we were able to do this week uh, in efforts to reach into our city uh, and out into the world as well. Um, we, one of our, the missionaries that we support is Gary Powell for uh, our father's house down in El Salvador. Uh, they had a matching uh, donation thing going on. And we were able to contribute a, uh, a donation to that. They hit their matching funds of $140,000. They're going to be able to do something very special with that to improve. It's a house for uh, women and children, uh, kind of an orphanage, uh, safe house sort of thing. So uh, we're excited about them. I've talked to Gary a couple times on on uh, Zoom, and it's an incredible ministry. We were also able to send a check to... Uh, EFCA Reach Global uh, as they minister to those people that have been flooded in Kentucky. Uh, they have a crisis response ministry, and we were able to support them. And the other thing is, um, I think John mentioned it, we put out 50 backpacks into the community this year, uh, this week. Uh, I don't know if you saw the pictures on Facebook, uh, but there are now 50 children that will have the school supplies they need to start the year. And that was a massive effort. Uh, we had folks contributing funds to it. We had folks doing the shopping. We had folks stuffing the backpacks. And it was really kind of an exciting thing. And uh, every year, God blesses through us and blesses us by being able to participate in that. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your donations. Thank you for the hard work that you put into that. And thank you at home that have participated as well. So I'd like you to turn to Judges. We're going to be in chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. And while, while you're, you're turning there, I, we're all familiar with the phrase that shows up in Scripture saying, My grace is sufficient for you. Uh, so we know God is gracious. Amen? God is gracious. We know, now, what we struggle with from time to time is how gracious is God? So we all have a tendency to think that perhaps God is very gracious, but there's not really enough grace to cover what I just did or what I'm about to do or something I did many, many years ago. So the question is, how gracious is God? And we're going to see the answer today all the way back in the book of Judges. Now, let me give you some background. Judges covers Israel's history roughly between the 15th uh, or 14th century B.C. and the time of Samuel and the Kings, which was around the middle of the 11th century B.C. And it, it, as the, the book begins, the covenant with God has been confirmed by his people Joshua dies in chapter 2, and Israel moves from this period of battle and conquest into a time of settlement. 
And God raises up judges. So now there's some structure coming to everything. Before it was all about armies and fighting and occupying the land, but now there has to be some civil structure. God raises up judges. Now, uh, we're not quite sure what to make of that title. Uh, but I'll tell you what the Jews would have thought when they heard it. that they're, they're, it, it designates something like tribal leaders, uh, something like governors. Uh, they function similar to uh, the way a prince would, would function uh, or a chieftain over a, a smaller region. And God frequently uses these judges in the book of Judges as deliverers for Israel. So when you hear judge, think ruled over. They ruled over a region, an area. Uh, so everything is said. Israel has taken Canaan. Uh, her people are now living in the promised land. They've watched God deliver on his promises miraculously, supernaturally. Some really neat things have happened. But, gasp, all is not well. Everything's not going the way that you would think it would go after such an incredible blessing. With, with, with all the fighting and all the strife over, the people become complacent. They begin to, to wallow in themselves and the land, and they seem to have, have just allowed themselves to backslide. And furthermore, they haven't really done everything that God told them to do. God told them to either, either get these people out of the land, make them as workers, or to annihilate them. And they haven't done that. Several, several regions are still occupied by the original residents. So the tone of, of the book of Judges is set in chapter 2, which describes the death of Joshua and his generation, and also describes what happens to the generation that comes after Joshua. So what we need to keep in mind is that they've had this great victory. And I, I don't know if you found this out in your life, but I found out in my life, the time that I'm in the most danger of slipping up, of backsliding, of of reneging on the promises I made and everything, are the times that I've had the greatest success. And, you know, somewhere along the line, you kind of start thinking, well, I did this, I did that, and your success becomes about you, and all of a sudden that focus that we're supposed to have, making God the highest priority in our lives, just kind of drifts away. So here's what happens in Judges 2, starting with verse 10. It is a little lengthy, but listen carefully. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That's Joshua's generation. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. Look how many times it says this. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them, for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. 
Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So a couple things have happened here. Number one, Joshua's generation didn't really do a good job of letting the coming generation know everything that had happened. And so the coming generation grows up, and they're apart from God, and, and we have this incredibly strong language in verse 17 of chapter 2. And the book of Judges exhibits this amazing pattern over and over again, this pattern of behavior. The people prosper. They turn away from God. God raises up oppressors. Watch that. God raises up oppressors and the people suffer. They cry out to God. He sends deliverers and then they prosper and the cycle starts over again. Only each time the cycle turns, the situation gets a little worse. The book of Judges ends, ends with this statement, Judges twenty-one twenty-five. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Wow. How do we ever get there? Today we're going to look at one of those judges, a woman named Deborah, whose story rolls out in five chapters. What we're going to see is this cry that arises from the people in Judges 4, 1 through 3. We'll see a command issued in uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. We'll see the conditions levied upon that command in verses 8 through 9. We'll see a coalition formed in verses 10 and 11, and we'll see a charge, literally a charge, in verses 12 through 16. So, a judge named Ehud led the people against the Moabites in chapter 3, and God gave them the victory. Judges 3.30 says this, the land had rest for 80 years. But then look what happens. Okay, again, the cycle. Okay, so there's 80 years of prosperity. And this cry rises up from the people. Judges 4, uh, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So we see this, this pattern beginning to emerge again. And we're only in chapter 4. And verse 2 says, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hegoyim. Now, Look where Hatzor is. There's a map here. And Hatzor is right in the middle of Galilee. And so, again, the people have not taken the entire area. They've allowed some people to stay. And they've failed to occupy the entire land. They have collectively, while doing that, they have collectively turned their backs on their God. And now this local, regional king, who should really amount to nothing, is causing problems. He's terrorizing them. And, and look what they do, verse 3. Then the people of Israel, this is after 80 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For they had not, he had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So the people are so overwhelmed by their situation, they've forgotten 
They've forgotten God's promises. They've forgotten the victories that God gave them. The author says that the people of Israel are oppressed. And it seems that Jabin is, is not just giving a hard time to the people in Galilee, but the entire nation. And look at this. They cry out. Now, you know, the way I would like this story to go is they would cry out and go, don't worry, I got it taken care of. God would just smite them. You know, lightning coming down from the sky or something. But God doesn't answer for 20 years. He doesn't answer for 20 years. He waits. And when he does, it comes in a way that I think might surprise some folks. Chapter 2, we see this command is issued. But watch what happens here. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging. Now, the NIV says leading. I like that. They're, they're both the same thing, but I, I think it's a bit more descriptive. So Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging, leading Israel at that time. Deborah means bee, so we should see something very industrious here. Lapidoth, as you put them together as one, means something like torches. And I think what the author wants us to see is that Deborah brings a source of industriousness and light to a very dark time for Israel. But of all, all, all else, we should see that Deborah is a prophetess. Her role in Israel is as spokesperson for God. Not only that, but she has, she's a leader. She's a leader who demonstrates authority. Well, how should you do that? In verse 5, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So among all the judges mentioned in the book of Judges, and there are a lot of them, we have this one woman who happens to be the leader of the nation and a spokesperson for God. She's also well-known amongst God's people. She is so well-known among God's people that the place where she sits is called by her name. So she's got some authority. She's got some influence. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, now notice, Barak is from another tribe, Okay, uh, so we're, we're seeing Deborah's authority being extended beyond her tribe. Her tribe is uh, Ephraim, and uh, recognition just goes beyond the tribal influence. And she summons Barak, who apparently is a military leader, and he feels compelled to come. And she says to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you? And now, I, again, I like the NIV here because the more assertive it says, the Lord has commanded you. This isn't really a question. This is Deborah saying, you know, hadn't the Lord told you to do this? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, another tribe. Now we see the full extent of Deborah's authority. She delivers a message from God instructing Barak to gather an army from his tribe and that of Zebulun. Now, these are the tribes in this region here. And Deborah says, God says to Barak, verse 7, and I will draw out Sisera, 
the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Wow. Deborah's message is that God is going to bring Sisera to the battle. You ever doubt God's sovereignty? You know, we have this tendency to think that, oh yeah, God's sovereign over me. But there are things happening in the world that he's not sovereign over. So watch what just happened here. God's people turned away from him. And he raised up the oppressors. And now he's going to bring the oppressors to the battle. He makes his promise to Barak, put the army together, I'll bring the guy to you, and I'll give you the victory. This is big. Now, they were just a tribe that needed to be defeated 80 years ago, but now they are terrorizing Israel. And it's been going on for over 20 years. They've cried out to God. And even though they're fickle, even though they are faithless, God is going to deliver them, and Barak is going to lead God's army. The command has been given, and Barak is going to obey it. But surprisingly, Barak has some conditions. Now, I, I think we're getting a little bit of a shaky area, but we know that God is gracious, amen? So Barak has, he wants to share these conditions with Deborah's story, which moves us to chapter 3 of Deborah's story. Barak said to her in verse 8, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, at first, this looks like either hesitation or outright cowardice. And I've heard those claims being made. Indeed, some folks accuse Barak of being passive here. Oh, he should have been able to do this. should have been that. Okay, well, yeah, no wonder God had to put Deborah in there. Barak didn't have the guts to do it himself. But I don't think that's what's happening. Uh, and I, I think this is both a show of respect for Deborah and a request for her, God's spokesperson, to accompany him and be the official representative of God in the middle of this battle. God's prophet leading God's people. And I'll tell you why I think this is so in just a little bit. But first, let's take a look at how Deborah responds to these, these uh, conditions. Verse 9, and she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, Deborah reminds Barak, okay, I'll go, but she'll be the recognized leader in the battlefield. She's the authority. And even so, she confesses that the Lord, the Lord will gain the victory. She's not saying, okay, you know, if you do this, I'm going to get all the credit. But she's saying, if you're going to do this, people are going to recognize that God has used me to bring this victory about. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So they're both confident of the victory. God has spoken. They're demonstrating faith in God. Both of them are. Barak's conditions are met. And all that's left now is to find an army. And that takes us to chapter 4 of Deborah's story, the coalition of, formation of the coalition. Verse 10, And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with them. Now, th this vast army is on the move, and it's really the first assertive thing that we've seen in almost 100 years from, from the Jews. Now, in verse 11, a curious verse in verse 11. 
It's kind of like there's a bump here. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as way as the oak in Zananum, which is near Kadesh. Now, this is an important verse. And it won't be obvious until next week why it's important. So you've got to come back. <laughs> so the, the important thing we need to see is that this coalition has been formed and Israel is ready to fight. And that brings us to chapter 5 of Deborah's story, the charge. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. This is, they are the superpower of the region. 900 chariots of iron are almost indestructible. And all the men who were with him from Herosheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, verse 14, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. So now the leader of this superpower is running away. So this is a supernatural, miraculous victory. This should not have happened, but because they had faith in God, because God went before them, because God assured them of the victory, they beat this incredible war machine. And the leader is running for his life. Verse 16, And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So Barak leads this charge under the supervision and direction of Deborah. The army falls into the hands of Israel. All of the army are slain. It's an incredible victory over a rogue and bullish nation. Just nasty people. And God delivers his people once again. Once again. How many times have we seen this in Scripture? Now, verse 15 is the key to this whole passage. It says, the Lord routed Sisera. Lest we get into debates over who the leader was. The Lord routed Sisera. God used Deborah and Barak. But God, the Holy One, is the one who gains the victory. Regardless, watch this. Regardless of their faithlessness. They haven't earned this. They've got good people leading them, but the nation has not earned victory. He hadn't done it by Deborah's power or Barak's, but by God's power and by God's grace. So there's the five chapters of Deborah's story. There's more. We'll talk more about it next week. But we saw this cry. The people cry out. But did you notice that they only cry out when they're in trouble? I mean, isn't that what we see over and over again? When times are good, they're kind of like, ah, I don't have time for this right now. But all of a sudden, they're surrounded by enemies, their circumstances change, the pressure's on, and they, they cry out to God. When things are going good, they take God casually. And if they go good long enough, they eventually turn away from Him. So God allows strife. 
God not only allows strife, he causes it. Well, I don't like that, Pastor John. Yeah. I mean, doesn't God send plagues on the camp when they turn away from him? Somebody told me, God can never send something he doesn't have. I said, he has everything. It's kind of hard for us to absorb the fact that that maybe, just maybe, God allows strife to lie, rise up in our lives so that we can turn back towards Him, so that we can learn to depend upon Him. See, this is, this is the essence of God allowing everything in our lives for our good and His glory. So, we, we like that, amen, we like that. But we're not so sure about it when the things that are for our good don't feel so good. Hold on to his promises, they tell me. What about that one? What about this here? This situation? Is it possible that God allows the hard times in our lives to occur, to bring closer to him? Is it possible that he even causes it? Here's some thought. Talk about it over lunch. We saw this command. And even though God has been, uh, God's people have been unfaithful, God sends a deliverer to them. And, and through Deborah promises victory over their enemies. He says, do this and I'll give you the victory. And then we saw these conditions. Deborah tells Barak that God will gain the victory, but Barak won't go if Deborah won't accompany him. And I believe this is, a step of faith for Barak. And I'm going to tell you why. Again, I've heard all these accusations about Barak. Oh, he was a passive male. When the males won't do anything, God will use women. Almost as if that's God's second choice. You think God functions like that? I'll tell you why I think it's a step of faith for Barak. Because Barak, Wayne read it earlier. Barak shows up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, doesn't he? Listen to this. Hebrews eleven thirty two, And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, Stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Barak's right there. Barak was neither passive nor weak, but he had a high regard. He had a high degree of respect for God's prophetess, and judge. And as such, we're reading about the guy 3,000 years later. It's an incredible moment. The inspired word of God calls Barak a man of faith. We saw this coalition. We saw that there is divine power available to God's word when they unite when they set all of their differences aside and move in one direction, allowing the Lord to lead them. 
They work together for the glory of God. We saw the charge. Notice that there are a lot less details about the actual battle than they are about God's plan for his people. God's literally saying in all that, do what I tell you to do, you'll have the victory. How you get it's not important. The, the important thing is why you get it, and it's, it comes through obedience to me. Now, we have some practical lessons from this, and we may need to... Hold on for a second. We may need to rethink our attitude about women. Maybe we don't. Oh, we all know. We know Paul says that women are supposed to be silent in church, don't we? You know, that's in 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 11, God instructs women on how to prophesy in the assembly. What do we do with that? Oh, I don't know. They're supposed to be silent in church. How silent? We're all familiar with Paul, what Paul says about women having authority over men in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But then we see Deborah doing just that. We see Miriam mentioned with Moses and Aaron in Micah chapter 6, as one of the three leaders of Israel. What do we do with that? We also see Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos in Acts 18. What do we do with that? There are any number of ways to explain those incidences away. Somebody told me a long time ago that clearly Aquila taught Apollos the scriptures and that Priscilla taught him how to keep his house in order. There might be a little bit of reading in the scripture there. Some of those explanations may hold up, but they don't really compare well with the full counsel of scripture. What do we do with these things? I, I, I just need you to think about it. I just need you to think about it. Put everything together. Think about what we see. Think about what the marriage relationship is supposed to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. There's structure. We all agree with that. But I think, I think the mistake that the church has made historically is to think that headship means control and kingship. And, you know, we, we understand that, but it doesn't always play out well in the home. Doesn't always play out well in the church either, I gotta tell you. You know, I've had several people tell me in years past that women's place is in the nursery and in the kitchen. What do we do with Deborah? We need to think about these things. And maybe your mind won't be changed, it's okay. This isn't gonna be on the final. Peter's not going to be standing at the gate going, well, what do you think about women in ministry? Oh, sorry, you can't come in. Okay? But these are the things that we allow to come between us. Matters of secondary importance. And we make them primary. We just need to be careful. And we need to look, we need to look at everything that happens in Scripture. We need to see that the very first people charged with sharing the gospel were women. What do we do with that? 
So that's a good practical lesson. I'm happy to dialogue with you on that if you want to. Yeah. What, do we, what do we learn about God and his character and nature? Because that's really why we read the Bible, right? We're, we're not here to find out what, whether or not our ecclesiology is correct, whether or not our doctrine is correct. We're here to find out about the character and nature of God and then conform our ecclesiology and our doctrine to what his character and nature is. Amen? So what do we learn about God here? How gracious is he? Now, we've seen his grace, but how gracious is he? Paul wrote that, that verse about grace being sufficient in 1 Corinthians 12. Maybe we need to spend some time in 1 Corinthians again. 10 through 15 is pretty fascinating. But he's talking about, remember? He's talking about having a thorn in the side. And he prayed for the thorn to be removed, and it wasn't. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. God's telling Paul that even if he wasn't healed, God's grace is enough. But enough to do what? Did you catch what happened in Deborah's story? God's people turned away from him again. As a matter of fact, it happens over and over again. It's a story of the Old Testament. God delivering his people. They're doing fine. They turn their back on him. They cry out to him when times get tough. And he delivers them again. It happens again right here in in chapter 4 of Judges. Now there's always a price to pay for that. There are always consequences. But the Hebrews never cease being God's people. God never reneges on his promises to them. Oh, that's great, John. What does that have to do with me? It's our story. It's our story. We're constantly doing things that we know that we shouldn't be doing. And the problem is a lot of us struggle with that, thinking that somehow because of something that we've done, we have lost God's favor. Some of us struggle with whether or not we still are saved. I think I may be lost because I did this or I did that. I've had people from other churches tell me, I was saved, but I lost it because I did something bad. That's not how God functions. That's not what we see in the Old Testament. What we see is an exhibition of God's grace. And that is a shadow. It's a shadow of the grace that we've received. We've confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. If we have a desire, maybe not necessarily a compulsion, but a desire to have Him be Lord of our lives, God says, You receive that by grace, and my grace is sufficient for even what you've done, even what I've done. And the promise, the promise is that at that moment where we receive that grace, God makes a place for us in eternity. We can't undo it. We can't mess it up. We should see that in the book of Judges. Oh, we have so much to be thankful for. And maybe the paramount thing that we have to be thankful for is the fact that God does this. Because he does it, we can't undo it.
saved by grace, by faith alone in Christ alone. It's an incredible promise. And we see it played out everywhere in the Old Testament. And then we see the realization of it in the New Testament. And we will see the perfection of it. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.